You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud tipsy nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. Welcome, tipsy nerds, book lovers, doomsday seekers to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. I am one of your hosts, Natalie Wright, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Robin Dabney. Hey, Robin. Hey, Natalie. How are you doing? I'm feeling pretty fine. Pretty fine. Yeah. <laughs> had a little pre-show beverage, and now I'm having a, another one. So I did, too. You know, I had someone ask me one time... Um, like, do you guys actually sometimes drink before this? Because sometimes you start the show saying you're already tipsy. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> like, that is a thing. Because so. sometimes there's user error and we go halfway through a show and realize that Natalie didn't hit the record button. That's part yeah. of why that happens. So Nobody's pointing fingers. <laughs> nope. Yeah. <clears throat> Don't tell anyone. But um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> welcome to an especially tipsy version of the Tipsy Nerds Book Club, where today we are discussing the Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, first published in 1992, a part sci-fi, part historical fiction book, I would say, Um, and kind of appropriate for the Christmas season, wouldn't you say, Robin? Yeah, yeah, I think it's like, for those who consider Die Hard a Christmas movie, you would consider Doomsday Book a Christmas novel. It takes place... In December, around Christmas time. So I'm going to say, yes, it's an absolutely appropriate Christmas book. We accidentally slated it into December and I open it up. I start reading and I was like, perfect. We're brilliant accidentally. Yeah, we're doing the very dark Christmas uh, season because we have this one. And then uh, later uh, in December, we're going to have the story Marshmallow, which is a futuristic dystopian story that takes place, place during the holiday season. So uh, look forward to that. But yeah, we're, we're doing kind of the darker side of Christmas yeah. this season. We're, we're more Krampus than Santa. I don't know. <laughs> um, it, it fits. And what are we drinking? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. So um, this book takes place, the Doomsday Book, I guess in two periods of time, the present, which is the future, and also in the 14th century. I was trying to find a drink that was one winter, December appropriate, but also might have been kind of around in the 14th century. Um, so we're going to go with a doomsday wassail is what we are calling this. Um, you know, wassail can be made a lot of different ways. It can be made alcoholic, non-alcoholic. Um, we are choosing to do it with wine instead of ale because we both decided that hot ale sounds gross. Maybe it's not. If you guys are hot ale drinkers, let me know if it's good. Um, but the wassail we're drinking. Yeah, yeah hot, go ahead. hot and fizzy. I don't, I don't like the idea of hot fizzy. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go with wine. If you want hot fizzy, substitute it with ale. Um, but it's, it's water, honey, cloves, cinnamon, lemons, and red wine. Nothing bad, only delicious. Warms the belly, protects you from the Black Plague and modern day influenza, hopefully, um, which you will get that reference if you've read this book or if you choose to read it in the future. But yeah, so, you know, Wassel, I couldn't find any date exactly on when it first appeared. It looks like the word first was written down in Beowulf in the 8th century, which is cool. Um, I had to read Beowulf in high school. A lot of people have. Um, it wasn't a drink then. It was like a greeting to warriors. But, um, you know, the drink is mentioned in the 12th century, the 13th century. So it would have been around in some form. 
during the time period this book took place. And she mentions it in the book. Yeah. They, they're drinking it on um, Christmas Day before they go to mass or after mass when everyone's basically drunk. And, and you can put toast in it. If you put toast in the bottom of your glass, apparently that's like very traditional. Like, like bread toast? Yeah. Huh. Like they, <laughs> they would take the bowl and go door to door and with toast and people would dunk their toast in the wassail um, when they were caroling and... So, so is, is that, that like, is, is there, there some tie, tie to, to that, that to communion or, or is, is that, that just, just like, I don't, I don't know. I think people okay. are hungry. <laughs> okay. I feel like wine soaked toast is not like yeah. my snack, snack of choice, choice when yeah. I have some cheese. <laughs> mm, let's have some wine soaked toast. Yummy. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> back then, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have, you know, like the grocery store on the market. So Cheetos. Yeah, you're right. People ate weird stuff. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me what this book is about, Natalie. Set it up for okay, our readers right. who who we haven't have no read this. It's, it's not like a common book. I hadn't really heard much about it until this list. So I think this will be one that a lot of people have not read, but might be interested in. Yeah. So in essence, the story follows uh, Kivrin, and she is a student at Oxford. And the story is set in 2054. That's the sort of future time period. And uh, at that point in time, there are time machines and Oxford historians use the time machine to go back in time to study different periods of history. And Kivrin is a student of the medieval period and medieval has been deemed too dangerous to go to for obvious reasons like cholera, the plague, the Hundred Years War, just to name a few. Rape, famine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah really bad shit. So anywho, I guess like the, the head of like the department, like the the head dude of the time machine, he's off fishing or something. Like he had never has really heard from in this story. Everyone's trying to get a hold of him, but this uh, kind of sort of antagonist, Mr. Gilchrist, who's the head of medieval. He's like, he gets made head of this and he kind of slots Kivrin in and says, yeah, sure. Go to medieval. So they end up using the time machine. She goes and she wants to go back to 1320, which is before the plague hit England. And she's going to go to this village that another character in the story, Dr. Montoya, is actually doing a dig, like in Kivrin's time in the village, like an archaeological dig. So she's going to go back to 1320, which is where everyone's assured her there's no plague. And you know, study this village and it will hopefully augment the dig that Dr. Montoya is doing. So that's kind of the setup. She's going to go back in time. And I think any reader would expect that something's going to go wrong, right? Otherwise there's no story. And yes, things go wrong in both time periods. Her, this, this one instance of time travel, not for reasons you might expect, but it ends up affecting both people in the current time and then her in her in the past. And she, like, she had studied, these are, like, time-traveling historians from Oxford, and and she had studied, she had prepared for this, like, their language, how they dress, how they interact, what she, you know, what her role in society would be, and she shows up, and she realizes, like, all of her prep work is kind of inconsistent with the time period, so right off the bat, she knows, like, something is kind of wrong, we, I mean, she doesn't really do anything about it, which is kind of one of our issues, but, you know, it, there are clues throughout that something is amiss and uh, come to find out she ended up about 30 years later in 1348, I think, which is right when the Black Plague hits. And that, of course, is a nice catalyst for a story. 
Yeah. So from this point forward, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it and don't want to know what happens, we're going to have a moment of probably complaining about the story (laughs) and what happens and also loving on it at the same time. But uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. So she ends up, yes, right in the heart. So one of my issues with the story, Robin, though, was this this young woman ends up in. So part of what they do to before she goes is they kind of rough her up a little bit, like literally she's like hit in the head to make her look like she has injuries so that when she lands in this time period, like she looks like, you know, she's been beset by robbers to explain why a woman is alone, which, you know, it seems like. Obviously, they could have just sent more than one person with her, but that's another story. So she's alone and she's there and she's, you know, kind of already injured. And she spends 300 pages in this time period without asking anyone the date. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like it never occurred to her to go, oh, and what year is it? When it was very obvious early on that things weren't quite what they should have been. But, you know. So I think we can agree that, so this is a, the concept to me is fascinating. When I first started this book, I was like, yes, I love it. So cool. The writing is really good. I mean, Connie Willis has won 10 Hugos and six Nebulas. I have writer envy. Um, She is a great writer. This is almost a 600 page book and it could have used a bit of editing. It's not poorly written. It's just needs to be cut down because the pacing of it you know, for a story about the Black Death where everybody dies, it moves a bit slowly. <laughs> well, like, no one really dies until, like, I don't know, page 580 or something. I mean, like... Yeah. Like, once it kicks in, everybody dies. I mean, like, like literally everyone in her village eventually ends up dead. So, but that doesn't happen until, like, about five page about page 500. So... Yeah. You sit through a lot of really nothing happening. And one of my biggest issues with the book, and I I know a lot of reviews online said this too, it is extremely repetitive to the point where you go, was there no editor that read, like no one edited this book? No one thought to tell Connie Willis, you know, if you write a scene, you don't have to then repeat what the scene said. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So like the character Kivrin is a historian and she's supposed to be there taking note of what she's observing. So she's got this device, which she calls a quarter, which I guess is just short for recorder. But if you call it quarter, it makes it sound, I guess, like futuristic. So she's got this quarter and she um, will put her hands together in prayer. And it's kind of like a device that's, I guess, embedded in her hand and it will she can talk into it and it will pick up what she's saying. So there will be a scene. And then she'll, there will be this break and it then it's like these pages from her doomsday book where she's taking record and she'll repeat what just happened. And that, yeah. you know, like consistently throughout the book or there will be whole phrases that she said that the writer writes and then three or four pages later, she says the exact same phraseology. So I don't know, maybe I'm just complaining because I got an edit back from my editor recently and I'm like, well, if I can't do it, <laughs> Yeah. Why can't she do it? So I like this is one of those circumstances where I feel like I blame the editors and not the writer because like, right, we all just write the best we can. And then it's up to them to 
go through and cut it down and make it a product that is good for the readers. It's like, because she was Connie Willis and she already had a name for herself, they were like, put it out there. We'll sell it to them. They won't know any better. And it's like, I feel like the editors were the ones who took advantage of us with this and did a disadvantage or disservice to Connie Willis by not cutting this down because this like, it's a really cool story and concept, but it's really not digestible for people who aren't into like long descriptions of medieval life. Right? It's not, a, yeah, it's, it's like a very specific audience who will enjoy this. Whereas if they had cut it down a bit, I think a lot more people would be able to read it, get into it and love it. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say I, wholeheartedly recommend it to everyone, but I also wouldn't say that I don't recommend it to anyone because I think that if you love medieval time period and if you like historical fiction, you probably would like it. If you like books like Outlander, which, um, you know, is a similar kind of idea where then you're in, in the sort of like this, a long time in the book is really sort of the minutia of her everyday life there. And things are happening, but it's, a really slow pace. I mean, essentially yeah. the conflict in the book is a fighting these diseases in, in her time. So and we'll, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but in her time, there's a disease that's taken hold in her past though. The plague doesn't actually happen until the very end of the book. Yeah. It's really like, like page 40, 50 or something that she, this starts to happen. But, but the conflict is just like everybody's, missing communication. Like she's trying to find Gawain, this guy who she thinks was at the drop where she dropped into this time frame, And it is like ridiculous how he's never around. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's extremely contrived that she can never speak to him. And, she, and the writer goes out of her way to say why she, you know, can't talk to him. And the, and the character's going through like 47 scenarios for how she's going to talk to him in her mind and for 300 pages. So yeah. like that, you know, and it's like, okay, just walk your ass over there and talk to him. You know what I'm saying? Like it gets to the point where it's like, ah, but it's it's that kind of, it's like missed communication, missed phone calls. Those are the only conflicts really in the book is yeah. people can't communicate with each other and, and, or they're stupid. Like they're just not piecing it together. It's like, look, I've known this is what's going to happen since page 200. And it's taking y'all like 400 pages to get it, you know, and it, it, that that's I don't know, that annoys me as a reader. Well, and I, they are Oxford scholars. So right. like they're smarter than us. Let's be serious. Like right. they, exactly. if we can get it, they can get it. And if they're living it, you know, like a real human in that situation would be asking questions, trying to figure it out. There definitely were some like contrived plot points. <laughs> right. In this story. Having um, said that, having complained now about it, <laughs> the yeah. thing was, okay, so I'm walking around my house, like moaning to my household, like, ah, this book, because it's like, I'm listening on audiobook and reading, kind of going back and forth. And it's like 26 hours. It's, it's a lot of listening and it's 600 pages. Mm -hmm. So I'm complaining. But then after about three or four days of that, I'm like, but I want to go back and pick it up again, because now I'm actually care about what happens. So Despite the flaws that we've talked about, I did get yeah. engaged in Kivrin's story and Mr. Dunworthy, well, her professor here in, in her time, you know, and like what happens, what's going to happen to these people? 
I think what she does well um, is the relationships between people. And one of the interesting things that I liked about this book was there's actually not really any romance, um, but there's almost every other type of human relationship. So you have loving friendships, love and caring for someone else's children, like mentor relationships. Um, but, you know, there's just, there's every other type of relationship that develops. And so by the end of this, you know, we as the readers care about the people in the past, um, you know, who are already dead at the time we're reading this based off of them being in the 14th century. But we also then have to endure their deaths as, you know, like through Kivrin as she's having to deal with this when the Black Plague does hit at page 580 or whatever. Right. Um, but I think that's one of the cool things about this story is that we're given all of these different types of relationships that aren't a romantic relationship, which is really easy to drive a story with a romantic relationship, but to get us to invest in all of these other people and care about them and, you know, mourn them and feel Kivrin's, you know, struggles and pains toward the end of this, I think that was well done. Um, yeah, I agree. One of the relationships I enjoyed was, and Connie Willis had such an amazing imagination because in both time frames, the world that she's in, you can really put yourself there very strongly. Yeah. In the 2054 time period where they're in Oxford, they're near the London environs, um, there's the character, Mr. Dunworthy, who is Kivrin's mentor. So the woman that goes in the future, it's her mentor. He's an older man, an Oxford professor. He has a friend named Mary who is works at the infirmary there at the college at the university. And her her nephew, Colin, is coming in for the holidays from somewhere else. I can't remember where. But anyway, he ends up making it there. And so there's this young boy named Colin. I think he's like 12. And because Mary's so busy taking care of sick people, he ends up spending all this time with Dunworthy. So it's kind of fun to watch this relationship develop between Mr. Dunworthy, who has had this kid kind of dumped on him, while he's trying to figure out what happened to Kivrin, because early on, it's clear that something has gone wrong. And he keeps saying, I will, and I will note repeatedly saying something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Yeah. Um, hey, guess what? Something's wrong. Um, but anyway, um, this kid's like got a gobstopper in his mouth and like just the whole, like the whole scene going on there. I feel like it was very fully realized. Like I could vision it as a movie, you know, their yeah. mannerisms and who they were and what they were doing. The same with the future. And then over the time, the, the relationships develop. And by the end, when shit starts really hitting the fan and people start dropping like flies in both time periods, then all of that relationship stuff tugged at your heart even strong, more strongly. Absolutely. I agree. Well, I think one of the things that was interesting, like the story has no real villain. There's some like antagonistic people, but I wouldn't call them villains. Um, maybe it's a man versus nature story, but it's not really like the, the disease is only a part of it. It's like really the story is about the relationships between people. So I, I don't know. I don't know what question I'm trying to ask, but like, you know, would you consider this a man versus nature story or is it more of just a, like a human, I don't know a human human story. Um, that's not, well, I, um, I think it's supposed to be a man versus nature story. Uh, and when we say okay. that, like, like as writers, like, you know, when you're learning about writing, 
they say that you can characterize all stories in like seven different types or 32 different types, depending on who you talk to or whatever, like man versus man, man versus nature, boy meets girl, you know, that kind of thing. And I feel like it's supposed to be a man versus nature story where the main antagonist is the disease. And there are actually two diseases happening in two different time periods. But that's like what the main, like the ticking time bomb that's going on is to fight the disease before it, kill the disease before it kills you. But I think one of the, the downsides to the story and why it's not as successful as maybe I wish it was was because um, while that is true and that's going on, we may have talked about this with another with another story, but often you do have in man versus nature stories, often there is a human antagonist that really sets up roadblocks and stands in the way. And she tries to do that with Gilchrist, who is an antagonist to Mr. Dunworthy, but he's just so not strong. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just any of the any of the roadblocks she puts in their way are very contrived roadblocks. So it lessens the impact of of the story for me. Um in, in that respect. You know what I'm saying? Where it doesn't feel ever like there's anything really like you a lot of times you feel like, well, if you would just go walk down there instead of trying to get them on the phone, you know, and and like yeah. talk to them, you could have solved this 400 pages ago. Or like with Kivrin. When you're sitting there noticing that things aren't quite right, maybe you could have asked what year it was and you'd realize that you're in shit, up shit's creek, you know, because you're sitting in the middle of the plague. But in I a way, it was, yeah. I think I was a bit forgiving of some of that for some reason, because like I have a soft spot in my heart for like 90s action, which is like notably cheesy and corny and contrived. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think like I'm reading some of this and I'm like, oh, it was 1992. Of course, you know, of course they're allowed to break all the rules of solid storytelling. Not that this isn't good storytelling, but like there are some cliches. There are some things you're just like banging your head against the wall because normal humans wouldn't behave that way. I don't know that I, it's fair for me to do that because, you know, I'm hard on stuff from the 60s, 70s and 80s for its various reasons. But like the 90s, I'm like, oh no, everything was contrived. <laughs> um, but I see what you're saying there. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like, I guess too, it, it, we get back to the editing piece where if, if someone had just had the the balls, I guess, to say to Connie Willis, who by this time is already, you know, like a very well-established author. It's not like she's a new kid on the block. Um, hey, you know what? You just said the same thing like 14 times in one chapter. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe you don't want to repeat yourself so much, but I don't think anyone had the wavos to do that. So that we end up with a story, a bloated story that didn't need to be. Um, and we've said this about other books too. So we're not just picking on Connie Willis. I mean, a lot of big name authors, you, you know, you like, man, I wish I could have gotten out the red pen and chopped some of this. But, but yeah, like I said, despite that, I mean, by the end, I'm like, oh, I mean, like Kivrin, um, <laughs> for some reason, like, okay, this lady kind of literally drops out of the sky. Uh, like they don't see, no one sees her. Well, one person sees her, it turns out, but no one sees her dropping out of the sky. She goes and she gets taken to this manor house and she's sick when she arrives. Okay. So there's some issues there, but like they literally have no idea who she is and where she's from. She could be like, in their time frame, you know, she could be a witch. She could be like a bad person. We don't know, but they give her, they get, they give her charge of the kids. Like she ends up being the nanny 
Like pretty much as soon as she's well, she's like, here, take care of our kids. And then like the mom, you hardly ever see her again. She's just pining after her husband and this guy who's sniffing around her skirt. You know, (laughs) it's like, like, oh, Gawain, where is he? That's basically all she does is where's Gawain? Um, And he's conveniently never around because he's the one person that the main character needs to talk to. So, of course, he's, you know, out gallivanting all over the place. But so that was kind of funny and weird, like. Hey, here, take care of the kids. But she ends up um, taking care of this little girl named Agnes, who's, I loved her. She was like this little spitfire kid. Yeah. And from the very beginning, I'm like, that's my kind of kid. You know, she's like into everything and she's sassy and she's smart and she's just, and then she dies. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I laughed. Why did I laugh? Um, it's like super sad. It's just, that's the the whole thing with this story is that, everyone dies and you go through it with Kivrin. And that's what I think she does do well. Yes. Connie Willis. Right. So like I complaining about the minutia of everyday life, but I mean, by the end I say, okay, if I were an editor, I'd say of hers, I would say, okay, cut the repetition because you really don't need that. That's just not, there's no point to that. But kind of walking through her everyday life there, I would say there was a purpose in that because it's through showing her building these relationships that you care. Otherwise, if everyone dies, who cares? You know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. that was kind of the part of the point of the story was to make you care about these people so that when they all start dropping like flies, it's not just some meaningless, you know, notation in a history book. It's yeah. like, no, they were real people. And yeah they really died. There was a, there was a quote that sort of goes with that from the book, but from Kivrin and it said, I wanted to come. And if I hadn't, they would have been all alone and nobody would have ever known how frightened and brave and irreplaceable they were. And I thought that was nice. It showed that, uh, yeah, it kind of showed the caring, like, you know, we think this book sort of meanders and all of that, but like, it is a human story. And it's like, Kivrin, even after going through all of this, feels like it was still worth it to go because it's like she gave an actual face and dimension to these people who were just footnotes in a history book and lived through that suffering with them. And I thought that was a really kind of interesting piece that, you know, a lot of times novels don't really dive into, again, humanity as a whole outside of the romantic relationship. And so I I liked that. Yeah. And then she also built this kind of fun somewhat parallel thing. So I think on one hand, you could say the story, what was the point of the story? I mean, I think some of the point of the story was to show that, again, history, it's not just notations in a book. I mean, it's not just dates and battles. There are real people that really lived and now they're really dead. And, you know, there was every, just all the struggles we go through and all the relationships we have, they had that too. Yeah, And just because we look at it as, quote, the dark ages or the medieval time, part of, I think, what she was showing, too, in the book is that it wasn't just all doom and gloom. I mean, they had relationships. Agnes had a puppy named Blackie, and she loved him. And, you know, he died. And all of these different things that happen in the book. But then there's this great parallel between then and now or Kivrin's future time where there's this kid named William that's sort of part of the story and the futuristic part of the story. And he has this, the ultimate helicopter mom. I mean, that woman is just like, my little Willie. And she comes into Oxford, even though it's in a quarantine, to like check on her little boy. And as Mr. Dunworthy's trying to research what who, who all have had 
contact with who, right? To see where the plague, like their, their plague started or their, you know, their influenza. She, he finds out that Willie has been like shagging, you know, half of like half of Oxford. It's like all of these women that he runs into and he's asking them where they've been and who they've seen. It's like, oh, and William. Oh, William, William. Yeah. While his mother's like, oh, my poor sickly little Billy, you know, and I just found that really funny. And then in the past time in the 1320s where Kivern is, the manor, the lady of the house, her mother-in-law is like the nightmare complaining lady who's kind of parallel to the helicopter mom in the past or in the future. So I don't know. I just found that kind of interesting too. All these little yeah. side characters are there for a reason. They give local color to it. But yeah, William was very healthy. <laughs> His mom needed to worry about him. <laughs> yeah, a strong young man. Um, yes. Yeah, there was a lot of parallelism in this story. And I think, you know, it's like I was trying to think about like, okay, what is she saying with this and like for me I think there was a lot of her saying that people don't change a whole lot like they do and technology changes but like even in 2054 when the future part of this story takes place like people are still ignorant and xenophobic about infected foreigners and all of that because there is the influenza happening at that time and then you have the Black Death in the the Black Plague in the 14th century, and we think that we've come so far and we're immune to all of this. But it's also showing like that human frailty is the same as it was back then. That we still have we now have this other influence sweeping through and and killing people. And it's like I don't know. There there's a parallel to show that like yes we've evolved, yes we've changed, yes we yes we've I don't know grown, but still. On a on a human physical level, we're just as vulnerable. And on a, I don't know if it's a human empathy, human relation level, human fear-based level, we're also still very similar. And so I think a lot of those parallels, I don't know, were drawn to point that out too. Yeah. I don't know if you like uh, agree with that or if there's like another piece of this, like why you think she wrote this story or what she was trying to say. Yeah, I, I mean, I think she had several things that, that she was showing. But to me, the thing that struck me the most was the concept that at the, at the end of the day, all that mattered were the relationships. I mean, all of the death is going on. And at the end of the day, the only thing that mattered was that they had lived and loved and that was all that was left, you know, when they were dead, but, but to also show that, yeah, I mean, we are more than just the notation in the Doomsday Book, which the book is called the Doomsday Book, but that's at, it's kind of named after the Doomsday Book, which was came into being after William the Conqueror conquered England in, in the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Um, and it was a methods to collect taxes, I believe. But it also was kind of like the first time that like everybody was accounted for prior to 1066. Like the fact that you lived or died would only be noted if you were a noble and the monks were keeping track of you, you know, like the births and such. Um, otherwise, yeah. the vast majority of people, like we don't know who lived and died. And then the Doomsday Book came along and started keeping track. So it's it's a take on that. But you know what I'm saying? It's like she's saying, no, it's more than just the notation of the name in the Doomsday Book. Like there's actual life behind that. And yes. they, they were there. It's a message I, I can really relate to and get into because I think that in my writing, it seems to be a conclusion I keep coming to again and again even when I don't mean to, like, I don't set out to say that, but that seems to be a thing that my, my own work tends to say repeatedly, Yeah, which is that, and, and exploring relationships so that I could really get into too with Connie's, uh, Connie Willis's writing is this, I'm interested in more than just 
romance relationships. I like to see all of the different permutations of friendship and parents and with children and then families that are made not by genetics, but by choice, yeah. right? Like people banding together in groups, that kind of thing. So I, I did really enjoy that aspect of the book. I just wish it yeah, wasn't so I, I repetitive. Think- yeah, I think one of the the highlights of it and one of the reasons you don't have a main antagonist and all of that is because there's no big battles, there's no event giant events. It's it's more about the intimate story of human relationship and I think a big battle or a human antagonist would take away from that to an extent. So I think yeah, you know, I think she did a good job of of driving that home. I agree really the downside and I don't want to discourage anyone from reading this because if you like medieval happenings um you will love this book and if you don't I still think it may be worth a read you might just skim over some things because on a humanity level it's still got a good message and it's well written and it's a lovely Christmas book with lots of bells so what did you think about the bells Robin because there is in the 2054 section of the book, there are these Americans that are bell ringers and they're supposed to be be there to do this massive, pe- what they call a peel. And I don't know anything about bell ringing. So and it, it, some of our <laughs> listeners may know all about bells and know what I'm talking about, but they're going to do a peel. It's called the Chicago peel or something. I don't know. And it's a special one and they have all these bell ringers. So there's that bell ringing. And then there's the, like when Kivrin both in Oxford and in the village where she's going, like in the village villages where she's going in the past, they're ringing for vespers. They're ringing when people die. And it's, there's lots of bell ringing. And then Kivrin or the little girl she takes care of, Agnes, ends up getting a bell for Christmas. And so she's ringing bells. So there's a lot of bell ringing in this, like a lot. And so do you think there was any like purpose to that or meaning behind the bells? I don't know. I just kept thinking, like, for whom the bell tolls. Like, I, I felt like it was like just heralding in the mass death that was about to occur in the story. But yeah. I, I feel like it's got to be deeper than that. And I just was too dense to get it. <laughs> um, this is a good question for listeners. Tell us about the bells. What are we missing about the bells? Is there something more, or is it just like heralding in mass death? I'm curious. Yeah, I, I felt like especially when Agnes received a bell, it seemed like it must mean something or, you know, what was it just, I don't know, she got a bell. I mean, because she got it as a gift and they could have given her anything, but she got a bell. Um, but yeah, I have to admit being a little choked up when when the little one died. It was like, okay, really? You had to kill Agnes? She was like, oh. Yeah, I guess so. That's the one thing that like wasn't contrived because if she had let her live, we would have been like, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, Kivrin almost like didn't she didn't want to go because she said at one point, like, how am I going to leave this one when she yeah. was holding her hand? And I was like, oh, that would be hard. You know, I yeah. was a nanny for a very brief period of time, which is a story in and of itself, like how that happened, which was really weird. But anyway, I, yeah, I could say, you know, like in a fairly short period of time, I, I got attached to the little girl I took care of because you spend so much time with them. And, um, she was a really neat little girl. And it was like that I kind of related to it as well. Like, yeah, when you're around a little kid a lot, you know, you can get quickly attached to them. And she did, she got very attached to Agnes. So she, if Agnes didn't die, I'm not sure Kivrin would have let her 
go. And at that point, you know, everyone else was dead. She might've stayed. So I'm not sure she could get back to her time if Agnes lived, but anyway, yeah. bells, lots of bells and what wassail and ale and wine all are all things they drank in the story. So I think that's probably accurate to the time. Did you see any anachronisms that you picked up in her writing? Like anything that didn't fit? Yeah. So like one of the things, um, and, and I, you know, I've been hit with this for editing before. So it, it's something that is an, I again, blame the editor. <laughs> I'm giving Connie Willis a lot of grace, but so one of like the, the one that stands out to me, I mean, there's others, but this is the one I remember was that they called at one point um, in the 14th century, they called it oatmeal. And I don't think that was a term that was around. I think they would have called it porridge or something else. So there were some like, um, Words like that that I feel like were just editorial misses. Again, I was like, oh, it's the 90s. It's fine. This is the era that gave us The Mummy and, you know, all these other movies I like. But like, I like The Mummy. Um, I love The Mummy. Oh, I still love The Mummy. Um, but yeah, so it's stuff like oatmeal in the 14th century that would not have been called oatmeal. Yeah. Well, I go to Ren Fair every year and it, uh, talk about anachronisms, like, you know, yeah. I, but so, but I'm not a scholar of medieval or Renaissance history. So I didn't really notice any of those things so much, but I, I, you know, I wasn't really like, I guess, paying attention for that, but yeah, there was some of that probably. Um, one thing I noticed probably more than, than that was, so it was written in 1992 is when it's published and it's supposed to be in 2054 and she's talking about bleepers in mm-hmm. like the doctor's carrying a bleeper in her pocket. So things like this were kind of bugging me where you're, it's like, are you, do you mean beeper? <laughs> right. It's like calling it a bleeper instead of a beeper doesn't really make it futuristic or calling it a quarter instead of being yeah. a recorder doesn't make it futuristic. So that probably was like a little bit bugging me more than it might have had I not read things like Neuromancer relatively recently where, you know, like Gibson is taking to this incredibly well imagined futuristic world, right? Yeah. Or like Blade Runner. And and here it's like, okay, it, essentially it is almost identical not just to London now, but to London and like their phone system is like, yeah, what the hell? <laughs> She's it's like the they, world building was a little flimsy in that way. Like, especially like you said, thinking of Gibson and Philip K. Dick who invented words and changed science fiction forever right. not like everyone has to such, do that right yeah so but, she's got this like almost like why did you say I mean the London and Oxford she's describing almost feels not just not futuristic it feels almost like the past like 1940 or something it it's does like what the hell's up with the phone system well even um, the technology is bad and kind of unreliable and it's right. like no, <laughs> um, right. you know, so we all know funny. I have unreliable technology, but like most of the, like right. most of the developed world does not have unreliable technology. Just right. Robin. <laughs> and you know, I, I was in London last year and I would say definitely London's pretty, you know, like futuristic. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that. Um, okay. I'm, I'm two drinks in people. All right. Give <laughs> me. London's like, really? But you know what I'm saying? Like definitely in 2019, London is not like 
1940. Right. London is definitely <clears throat> uh, as a as on on the money with technology or ahead than nearly any other city I've been to. So anyway, I'm not, I'm kind of dogging her a little bit. Of course, you know, this is like 20 some years ago or how many years ago is it? I don't know. I really, I need to not drink so much. (laughs) What what were we talking about? No, but but yeah, it's 1922. Listen back and and understand them. (laughs) She, um, you know, there aren't smartphones yet. So, but people are talking to each other like in video and that's about as far as she got as quote futuristic, but it's not, it's not very. So that just, like I said, this, I'm not sure I really call this book sci-fi because I don't really think it's sci-fi. I mean, yeah, I would, you know, I would throw it under like just speculative fiction, speculative historical yeah. fiction. Yeah. Or time travel fiction. Time travel is almost its own genre now because it's such a prolific genre. Yeah, that I, I think, think would fall under the speculative umbrella. Yeah, I think you're you got a point there. I I felt like it was a lot like Outlander, not yeah. just in terms of the time travel, but also in terms of the feel of it and the writing style and just sort of like you know, getting into a world and being in that world down to like what they're eating, you know, chamber pots and privies and you know the the really mundane day to day thing. It's like Outlander, Outlander without, without the romance. romance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I'm sitting here and for me, like I do, I am fascinated by the medieval times. I think that that is interesting. I think the black plague is fascinating. People who are interested in that will, will love it. Again, this is 600 pages. It's a tome. One of my favorite stories of all times is the terror by Dan Simmons. And it's another like 600 page volume about this Arctic exploration, navigating the Northwest passage that went wrong and, you know, he spends like hundreds of pages talking about scurvy and the woodwork and the build of a ship. And for me, that's my thing. That is my like my sweet spot. And so I'm like, yes, let me read more scurvy. I told my mom this is the greatest book. She should read it. And she was like, I'm sorry, I can't finish this. Just tell me what happens. And so it's like if this is your scurvy, if like medieval the Middle Ages and the Black Plague are your scurvy, like you will love this. If you like the minutia, like you were saying, and I, I liked it, but it's, you know, it's not as... I don't know. I, I still think it should have been edited, but I still, again, I want to reiterate that it's a good book. It's not like one of those where we really hate it and we're pretending to kind of like it to make you guys happy. Um, like we never do that. that no, we don't. One hundred percent honest. Yeah, especially at Christmas time. Yeah, especially when we've had a lot to drink. I think this is. You know, it's so funny because we didn't plan this way, but this is such a great Christmas story to have for tipsy nurse at this time of year because. Well, it's not only is it just, I would say it's even almost more Christmassy than Die Hard because it's not just that it's set during the Christmas period, but there is a fairly long section of the book where, you know, because it's like Twelfth Night and they go through the whole Christmas process. So they're out gathering everything. So a lot of the traditions that Western Christians see as Christmas traditions, she's really going through. And, and a lot of them originate during this period of time, gathering the holly and doing the wreaths and the candles and the wassail and and uh, the Christmas mass and all of this sort of stuff. So that was kind of interesting to walk through that. So it definitely has, a, and it's snowing and it's cold and it has a Christmassy feel. And um, we're also, at, I think in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a story called Marshmallow. And we're going to have the author of that story. And it's a dystopian, futuristic Christmas story. So we're going to have a very dark, merry Christmas for y'all this year uh, with Tipsy Nerds. Definitely the darker side of Christmas. Yeah. 
we're more like, like Krampus than Santa over here, yeah. <laughs> um, which but is okay. Good. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. It, it fits the Tipsy Nerds uh, brand. <laughs> to have a, a it does. Yeah. So I don't know. I would say it's, it's like a, a limited recommendation on my part for a doomsday book. I think definitely if you are someone that is more into sci-fi like Philip K. Dick or, you know, like Ender's Game, stuff like that, this may not really be your, your style, but if you like historical fiction, if you like plagues, <laughs> you know, and disease, like that kind of science. And if you like a more of a slow, um, nitty gritty detail relationship book, you might really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I think, think that's, that's a, a fair, fair representation, representation of it. Yeah, and if you don't mind repetition, repetition. Yeah. Repetition. <laughs> repetition. Yeah, I think this is one of those, like, it's a good book that we've we've stated our issues. We've given you all the information you need to know Definitely didn't hate it. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. Uh, we want to hear from you all, uh, listeners, tipsy nerds out there. Have you read Doomsday Book? Do you recommend it? What did you like or dislike about it? If it's not something you've read before, but you read it along with us, we want to hear your thoughts over on our social media. So definitely ch- uh, head on over to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and let us know your thoughts about this or the drink. Have you wassled yeah. before? I also want to know if you guys consider Die Hard a Christmas movie. So (laughs) please let me know that because that's sort of a never ending discussion. (laughs) Absolutely. Like I didn't really ever think about that. And then I heard the discussion over on Twitter and I was like, what? I, I didn't even think of that as a Christmas movie. Yep. But hey, whatever floats your boat, I, you know, whatever. I don't care. I, I, people get so charged about these things. That's what cracks me up. I'm like, okay. I didn't know that that was something to get really emotionally upset about one way or the other. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you have days where you need to get upset about something and die hard just happens to be. Maybe that's what it is. Hey, while we've been recording, I have to tell you about this little uh, little thing I have. I'm going to put a picture of it on Facebook. I was in at the British Museum in 2018 and there were this little chess set called the Lewis Chessman. And I have this little lady. She's one of the chess pieces. I have a miniature of her, like a replica. And she looks so incredibly bored. And she sort of is representative of how I felt during part of this, reading this book. So I'm going to take a picture of her. You'll see what I'm talking about when I put her on there. But I'm going to put her on my Instagram. So she's a a piece of the Lewis Chessman. It's a medieval chess set. So she's like my little totem for today with with my wassail, my little Lewis Chessman lady. And um, this is my sign when I've had too much to drink when I'm talking about nothing to you. And Rob I'm is talking just about like, Die Hard and you're talking about chess pieces. So um, <laughs> this is probably a good time to end the show. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe we just keep going and find other random things to talk about. Exactly. <laughs> well, we, yeah, like Natalie said, answer those questions we asked five minutes ago. And yeah, we hope you enjoyed the episode. We hope you guys are having a wonderful December. The, this helps with your holiday cheer. And what else? Cheers, oh, maybe. Yeah. Well, we want to just let you know about upcoming episodes. Do not miss our next episode. We are going to have a special guest returning to talk about Star Wars as we all get pumped up for the end of the saga, the Star oh, yeah. Wars saga. So that's fun. And definitely, definitely check out our marshmallow episode that's going to come in a couple weeks. And we have an incredibly tasty drink that I am really excited to share with you for that one, inspired by our author 
and and what what she wanted to dream. So don't miss those episodes. We are very happy to bring those to you. Excellent. Now, now I'm done rambling. Now we can all say right. goodbye. <laughs> happy doomsday to all and cheers. And to all a good night. Cheers. To, to all a good night. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. Love what you heard and want the fun to continue? Head over to Patreon and become a patron of the Tipsy Nerds Podcast. We love our patrons. Want a recipe for a cocktail you heard here? You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers.